Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Shows from Flahooly through Plain and Fancy, Candide, The Music Man, She Loves Me. For the last three decades or more, a wonderful cabaret and club performer. Barbara Cook, currently appearing in New York, the Cafe Carlisle, and a show you've entitled Tribute. Barbara, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you so much. Tribute has many meanings in in the title of the show. Well, I suppose, uh, yes, it does. In this case, though, I wanted to pay tribute since I'm the first person with a new act into the Carlisle since Bobby Short died. I wanted to pay tribute to Bobby, and, of course, I wanted to pay tribute to my uh, longtime accompanist, arranger friend, Wally Harper, who died last October. And this is the first new show I've done without him. So that, And in the meantime, I'm paying tribute to Harold Arlen and to Arthur Schwartz. Yes, as I said, multiple meanings. I'm, Howard and I each have seen this show, and for me, it was so wonderful. I've seen you afar. I've seen you up on a stage, a Broadway stage or a concert stage. But the Carlisle is so intimate that... It's intimate, all yeah, right. You're right up next to you, literally. Yes. And... You were so personal in the remarks you made during the show. I felt I really got to know you a lot better than I have over the decades that I've known your music. Well, that's nice. I think the reason I'm inclined to do that is that it makes me feel more comfortable. Uh You know, I try to break down any kind of formality so that uh, if I make a mistake, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than having to feel that I have to be perfect, God well, knows. It, well, it, it was, it was kind of like being in your living room with the piano and a couple of your friends around just singing for us, the 90 or so people oh, at good. the Carlisle. Good. But it, it was interesting to me because uh, I, I guess I'll reveal the night I was there, you totally went up on a lyric and, and needed it. And I'd never seen a performer so unflustered by <laughs> going up and just saying, oh, darn, where is it? Where is it? And... I wondered about how you you choose to pitch your performances because to keep it that casual, but even the show you did at Lincoln Center Theater last year, you keep it very casual. And is it that casual an experience for you to do these shows? Well, um, yes and no. It's certainly – the songs are very well planned and worked out and so forth – But uh, I've learned through the years that I'm better off not writing down what I think I ought to say. Um, I I have sort of talking points in my head. And if something occurs to me, then I add it. And if I forget something, it's not a big Mm -hmm. deal. So I think it's just part of that is simply to make me feel more comfortable. So you just kind of go where you feel that evening and it could vary from night to night? Also – one of the things I want to do in my work is to break down barriers. Uh-huh. So if you're very formal in your talk, I know so many people who do this kind of work write it out and memorize it. And I don't – for me, that I know for me that's not the way to go. Even when I have to make a little speech, I don't write it out. Mm-hmm. I just try to think of what I might talk about and then just talk. Well, that's what you- I try to do. You were speaking from personal experience, little anecdotes of things that have mm-hmm. happened in your life, be it regarding the music or just anecdotes of things in general. Right. So you're really just speaking as yourself. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. just as if, you know, I was, we're talking to you about seeing some of those shows of the Strand and the Paramount and mm-hmm. the, 
and the Roxy, those shows that, that I talk about in this particular performance at the Carlisle, yeah, I'm just telling you what happened, you know? <laughs> but while the dialogue obviously is not set from night to night, you, as you've made clear, you're not scripting it. Obviously, you've made some very conscious choices about the material you're going to do, yes. the order you're going to do it in. And could you – could you, because you draw from such a wealth of material, I mean it would seem to me that you, know, you can choose so many songs. Can you tell us a little about how you go about creating a set or an act? Well, because you're obviously constantly – revisiting different sets of music and different orders of music for, for all of the various engagements you play. Well, as you said, drawing from such a wealth of material, and that's really the problem. You have to set um, – oh, I can't think of the word uh, – guidelines. You have to set – what's the word? Well, is it parameters. You, you, have okay. to, you have to set parameters for yourself. Otherwise – there are millions of songs and millions of good songs out there, and you can drive yourself crazy. So um, somewhere along the line early on when I was working on this show, somebody said to me, oh, well, you're paying tribute to blah, blah. And I said, tribute. That's it. That's what That's I'll call it, tribute. Idea. And I knew, of course, that um, that I wanted to to recognize Wally uh, very much so, and I thought – it certainly shouldn't sound like a memorial. And so I thought, well, the way to do it is to sing some of his songs because I think a lot of people don't know his work as a composer. And uh, one of the early ideas was to do a lot of Arland songs because it's his, the centennial of his birth. So it was easy to choose Arlen and easy to choose Wally. And then while I was working on this, Bobby died. And then I thought, well, clearly I must include some songs that I associate with Bobby. And uh, the reason I chose Arthur Schwartz is that um, – well, let me backtrack it a little bit. You ask how I do this. And this is the first one I've ever really put together on my own. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not talking about arrangements, of course, but I'm talking about the actual songs that I would sing. And uh, what Wally and I used to do is to get out lists of songs, you know, and then just look at this list and say, well, what could I open with? What could be the closer? What what do I follow this song with? You see what I mean? And in this particular case, because um, I knew I needed a penultimate 11 o'clock, so to speak, 11 o'clock number – and I thought perhaps the song from Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Make the Man Love Me, could could do that for me. And then I thought, well, why don't I sing some of Arthur's other songs? And I do three songs from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by uh, Arthur and Dorothy Fields, and it's the centennial uh, of year of her birth. So it sort of fell into place that way. And then... Which songs of Ireland do you do? There are so many wonderful songs. Uh, and I decided to do one that I sang a long, long time ago and another that I loved last night when we were young that for some reason or another I've never sung. Wally and I often talked about doing it, but either it didn't fit into the particular program we were working on or whatever. And that's why those were chosen. And little by little... 
Well, actually, though, I shouldn't say little by little because when I sat down, I was very nervous about trying to choose these songs for the first time by myself. And actually, I got the list out, and the day came when I said, Barbie, you've got to, you've got to try to make choices here. And actually, I did it in about 45 minutes. Well, what, what was the list at at that point? How many songs did you have to cut out? Because it must be difficult to eliminate songs. Uh, well, I just I eliminated two songs. Oh, I was going so- to do uh, the Arlen song, Get Happy, mm-hmm. that is, you know, belongs to Judy Garland. Okay. And I thought it's pointless to do that unless I had a really, really good take on it. And I felt – well, for two reasons I cut that. One is that when when I added the songs – having to do with Bobby, I had to take something out. And the other is that I just didn't have time to work on that song the way I think I would like to. So, And how long – how do you work on a song? How long does it take you to prepare a song? It varies according to the song. Sometimes things come very easily and sometimes you're doing it a particular way and it just doesn't – feel right so you put your thinking cap on and in this case I had the help of Michael Cosrin and uh, who's your musical director and yes. pianist yes. Yes. but do you find yourself sometimes uh, do, you, do you reach a situation where you say I'd like to do this song and ultimately you're not you don't find the way in do you drop it you're obviously mm-hmm. you're creating your own script so you can you can do what you want to do yes up there. that would happen yeah if if I in fact I thought uh, there was the opening song. We couldn't find a way to do it. And I thought maybe that's just the wrong song. I should do something else. And finally we found a way that I thought would work. It's interesting because uh, you, you note in the in the show at the Carlisle that as part of tribute, you're paying tribute to Bobby Short who had performed there for 35 years. Yeah. And you mentioned that he was known for his interpretations of Cole Porter's music. Yet you didn't do any Cole Porter songs in tribute to Bobby Short. You chose two well, relatively unknown songs. I think most people think of Cole Porter and all those sophisticated kinds of songs when they think of Bobby. Right. But I don't. Uh-huh. I think of uh, I think of the two songs that I do, one by by uh, Gershwin and the other by Jerome Kern, and I think that's a surprise too to know that those songs were written by Gershwin and Kern. The first is um, it's a song called Nashville Nightingale that he wrote in 1923, and I've never heard anybody but Bobby do it, and I love that song. And interestingly, uh, George Gershwin, but not Iris lyrics. No, Irving it's Caesar. Um, Irving, Irving Caesar. Caesar. Yeah. yeah. And the second one by Kern is a song called Bojangles of Harlem about Bill Robinson, I guess. Um, and again, I've never heard anybody do it but Bobby. And I, I have always loved those songs. So I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity for me to have the right to sing those songs. And again, Dorothy Fields' lyrics. And you mentioned That's before right. the three Arthur Schwartz songs with Dorothy Fields. Yes. You have a wonderful CD, Barbara Cook, Dorothy Fields, Closest Pages in a Book. Do you have a special affinity for Dorothy Fields? Well, I think she was extraordinarily talented, absolutely. And, you know, in those years, it was very unusual for a woman to be working in in the music business. There have only been uh, two or three uh, successful female lyric writers, Dorothy Fields being one of them. Uh, Do do you think that a a woman brings a different sensitivity to writing lyrics than a man might bring? Um, Well, I would imagine so. I don't think I can point it out to you, but... Uh uh, 
certainly a woman's viewpoint is quite different from the male viewpoint. Like, like a Betty Comden, for, for yeah, example. I would say from time to time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when you were making up the the list of songs for the show, how did you strike a balance between heartbreakers and up-tempo and whatever? Do, do, do you look for that or you just – Well, yeah. You, you don't want to sing six ballads in a row. No. Uh, and I, I – you know, bouncing all this stuff off Wally and I hadn't realized how much I was learning about putting a show together. Uh, God, it's almost 31 years that Wally and I worked together. So I guess I learned something. Um, and I just remember the way we used to talk about putting the show together. It it came together very easily, actually. Well, how, how would you the, work the together? The choices came easily. Would, would, would he suggest things to you? Would you say, Wally, I really want to do a Every song? Every way you can imagine uh-huh. is how we put the show together. Uh-huh. Sometimes people would suggest things. Uh, it's just – it was a collaboration, really. Uh-huh. How did you and Wally first get together? I mean, it is one of the great enduring partnerships uh, yeah. in in entertainment, and obviously, Wally was known to the people inside the field. You were you were known to the to the public more. But but how did you first get together? Well, in um, 1973, I did a long tour. That was the 75th anniversary of George Gershwin's birth that year. And um, with several other people, we did uh, concerts with all of Gershwin's uh, music through the whole summer, you know, from the spring into the fall. It was a long, long tour. And Wally saw the show several times. And I remember Nancy Dussault, who was one of the people in the show, said, Wally Harper is the best accompanist anywhere, ever. And during that uh, time in 73, the man who was the um, advance man for our concert show said that he wanted to produce a concert for me. And uh, Wally's name came up and friends said, you two ought to get together, that kind of thing. So in February of 74... We uh, we just got together and said, you know, let's see if we can make some music. And that concert that uh, that the advance man had planned on didn't work out. I think he didn't realize how much money he would have to get together to produce this concert. And then sort of word got around that we had this material that we had worked on. We did it one night at the Eugene O'Neill Center in, um, in uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. And... That was the very first performance of this stuff we had worked out together. And then the people at Brothers and Sisters on West 46th Street, a wonderful little old club that's not there and hasn't been there for a long time, they asked if we would come in for a couple of weeks and we were big hit and stayed the rest of the summer. And while I was there, Herbert Breslin, who uh, has managed Pavarotti and all sorts of uh, Marilyn Horn and, uh, well, Renee Fleming, just um, big, big concert. Lot, classical yes, and artists. all classical artists was quite taken with my singing, and he produced the first Carnegie concert that Wally and I did in 1975, and he's the person who got the uh, the first recording contract for us from CBS Records. So, you know, 
it's amazing. We did that one night in Connecticut, and then we did a few weeks in the summer at Brothers and Sisters. Then we played two weeks in a little club in, uh, I think it was Philadelphia. Uh, that was in maybe October of that year, 74. And then the next stop was Carnegie Hall. <laughs> what a jump. <laughs> You're not kidding. Certainly got our attention, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I think it's very interesting because uh, you obviously had a very successful career on Broadway for several decades. But you have almost come full circle in the sense that you started out in clubs. You came to New York from Atlanta. You were born and raised in Atlanta. You came – you, you tell this at the Carlisle. You came to Atlanta in the late – from Atlanta to New York in the late 40s and started working in clubs. How did, how did that work out? Well, there? I didn't work in clubs – I worked in club. A, a club. <laughs> the, the, the Blue Angel. Yeah, yeah. the Blue Angel. Yeah, right, right. Wonderful, wonderful place. That The two men who owned that club just loved finding new talent and, and showing it off to New York. And fortunately, I was one of the people they chose to be there. I was there uh, in 1950 and again in 1951. I was there. So many people got started there. Um, Wally Cox hmm. got started there and, and uh, Carol Burnett. Just it was a terrific place to work. There were also those summers in the Poconos. Yes, nineteen fifty and fifty one. I was uh, God. These dates, Lord <laughs> help us. Yeah, I was part of the social staff at uh, Tamament in the Pocono Mountains. I love that phrase, the social staff. Yeah. <laughs> now you you have said uh, on more than one occasion, in fact, in a, a recent New York Times Magazine article, that you like to be able to sense the audience. You don't like working in a in a black uh, no. uh, pit sort of thing. You like a little bit of light in the audience. Do, well, you, do you feel a connection with the people? Well, yeah. You know, I I don't need to see people's eyes and talk directly to them. Mm-hmm. But I need to feel that there are people out there I can make contact with, to communicate with, to talk to, and to, in a sense, talk to them through song. Because that's that's what I try to do. And um, if I can't see people, what happens is it all kind of implodes on me instead of getting out. It's all getting in. And I'm inclined to be more nervous than usual if I can't see people because once there are people out there, mm-hmm. then then I can kind of get out of my ego and out of myself and be involved in telling a story or whatever I want to say. Either through song or or dialogue. And you've performed in many different venues, as intimate as the Carlisle with less than 100 people in the house to as big as the Hollywood Bowl and Carnegie Hall and, you know, big venues. Do you have a preference one over the other? No. It doesn't matter. Not particularly, no. If it's 90 or 900. Well, you know, if, if I did cabaret for three years in a row, I'd certainly want to do some big concerts mm-hmm. and vice versa. Vice versa? Mm-hmm. Which what's right? Vice versa, isn't it? I think that's correct. Yeah. How, how, how about Broadway? You well, you know, I I never say no, and I I just I love theater so much that I can't close the door. Uh-huh. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, is there a difference? You, you say you tell a story, and and certainly you know the best cabaret artists, of which you are certainly the pinnacle. It's always about telling the story of the song. But is there a difference between telling a story when you're performing? As Barbara Cook versus when you're playing a part. Oh yes, of course. And do you create a character when you're when you're just Barbara Cook out there telling a story? I don't consciously do that. People have talked to me about feeling that I do that. That um, particularly when I do the uh, um, 
the hour and a half shows, real shows, you know, rather than uh, the, the cabaret thing that I'm doing now. Um, people say they feel that I'm creating different characters. It's not something that I plan on. I just try to bring the song to life. You know, I breathe life into the song and I try to, f- well, first of all, I think what was, what's the writer getting at? What are they trying to say? And, and, uh, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And that's what I that's what I involve myself. I, in. I think it's interesting in that uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine article a couple of weeks ago. You were teaching a class, some young students, and at one point, apparently, from the way the writer portrays you, became somewhat frustrated with this one person's uh, performance. You said to the class, "What is this song about?" And I say that often. Yeah, basically to, to look into what to, was to the writer people. intending when he wrote it. It's amazing to me that people are so concerned with the notes uh-huh. that they don't have any idea what the song is about. They don't just have never investigated it. That's astonishing to me. They just want to hit the notes well, perfectly but not yeah, emotionally. Um, I can understand if you're going to a teacher who deals with technique, then the teacher is teaching you how to sing the song, how to sing, mm-hmm. right? But um, nothing is more boring to me than hearing somebody who might even have a really pretty voice. But but after a while, if they don't let me in, then I'm bored. I want to know. I don't. I want to know where you stand with this. Let me in. Well, in, 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 this, in the same piece, you're, you're referencing to the student that she hasn't had enough life experience. You've obviously had some rough life experiences over your career and, and your life. Do you think that enables you to better interpret heartbreaks type songs, that sort of thing? Well, look, I'm 77. You don't get to be 77 without going through good times, bad times, the whole thing. And uh, if you are <laughs> – oh, God, how do I say this? Um, some people have the ability to what to put their life experience into a song or into a painting, mm-hmm. into a, a novel, more than other people, and I think that's what one should work toward: the specificity of it. You know it, what? It, how 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 does how has what has what has life done to you? Mm-hmm. And how do you put that into your work? So is that a conscious thing on your part? Is it just part of what's in you from the experience? I don't think up? it's conscious anymore. It may have been at some point. Uh-huh. It's just now. It's just the just way I work. Part of you. Unquote. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I'm not aware of doing it, I think. I wanted to ask this later, but we seem to have come around to this quickly. Um, your career spans popular music for certainly a half a century and you've you've seen so much of what's going on and you even delve further back in terms of the writers that you you deal with it was interesting in uh in the new york times review of the show at the carlisle um and several paragraphs were taken up not writing about barbara cook but um going after american idol yeah and and i do wonder you know in your teaching and in what what we're now seeing is the way of popularizing new performers. What is what is your take on what's happened to singers? Let's even leave American Idol out of it, but in the way that style on Broadway has changed over time. Well, melisma is the latest fad, and I th- can you explain what that is for people who don't know that? Um, it's a it's a kind of coloring of a line. 
and using extra notes, and I think it comes out of gospel. And I love gospel music. I love it. In fact, when I was a little girl growing up in Atlanta, on summer nights, my father would put us into the car, you know, and we'd, we would park outside black churches and listen to the music. I remember that very clearly. It's one of my early memories. I, I grew up with it. I love gospel. But I think what's happened so often now is that people use this melisma so much that you can't find the song anymore. And I think a judicious use of it is fine. And not every song calls for it, but every song gets it now. Um, I just think it's most often annoying or boring. Uh, as far as American Idol goes, because that's what you're talking about. Well, I was really more con- curious as to what you thought of the current crop of Broadway Well, uh, let me talk a little bit about American sure. Idol. Of course, I'm interested in, in singers and all of that and singing. And uh, I find some of Simon Callow, is it? Uh, Cowell. Cowell. Oh, Simon Callow. Simon Callow, we like him. Simon Callow, we like, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, some of his comments are, are annoying in many different ways, and I disagree with him often about the singers. I don't watch it all the time, but I've watched a, a couple of them. Um, and I'm told by Stephen in this uh, review of, that he did of me that uh, he really denigrated one of Rodgers and Hammerstein's songs. And, you know, it's hard to know how much of his attitude is um, done to foment madness on that show and how much is real. I don't know. I don't know how much of that is real. But it's annoying to me. I didn't hear him say that. That certainly would have burned me up. Uh, it also annoys me when you'll say, oh, that's cabaret. Well, look, there is lousy cabaret and there is medium cabaret and there's very good cabaret. And that's true of everything. There's good melisma. There's lousy melisma, you know. Uh, there's one person who came out of American Idol who I think is a bona fide star and that's Fantasia. I was in um, – California, Los Angeles for the Grammys just recently, and I went to a big party the night before she sang, and she knocked me out. She is a tremendous entertainer. I think she's got it all. She looks great, and her melisma doesn't bother me in the least because it's coming from something. It's not just tacked on, do you know? Um, so it's possible to get some good out of that, that show, I suppose. <laughs> and But there's the, there are accusations now that that style is affecting Broadway. Yeah. And Well, I think it may be to, uh, to some extent. I don't see a lot of musicals. Um, the way I, I don't feel proud about that. I love opera and um, – I go so much more often to opera and I think mainly that's because, you know, they have five performances, eight performances. Either you see it or you don't. And I always think, oh, well, I'm going to get to see this show or that show on Broadway. And before I know it's closed, I just sort of put it off and I shouldn't. And I don't really intend to not see them, but suddenly they're gone it seems because I'm busy. And I did hear you were quite the fan of Boy From Oz. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, that that particular season, I guess it was last season, wasn't it? All I did that see, I saw, I saw uh, Stevens' Assassins twice, and I, I loved that production. 
And I saw lots of things at the Metropolitan, at, at the opera. And I saw Hugh uh, Jackman 15 times. Really? Yep. He well, came to see me the other night. It was so good uh, to see him again. Um, I just think he's an extraordinary talent. And boy, you didn't hear any kind of melisma and crap out of him. I'm telling you. It's just he's such an honest performer and that's what brought me back again and again and again. Well, this question that Howard was asking you though, do you think that Broadway nowadays is reflecting the taste in popular music or is it popular music imitating Broadway? In other words, is it chicken well, and egg, one leading the other? I, I don't know. I, I, um, I heard a wonderful singer whose name I'm, I'm not going to mention who was one of the top leading people on uh, on Broadway and has a really wonderful voice. And I heard what I thought were popisms slipping in there. And that does disturb me because I think that's not the place for them. You know, um, Dick Rogers was such a stickler about how his shows would be sung, how his songs would be sung within within the shows. That was not true for him if he heard a good thing on the radio of somebody, you know, fooling around with the music in a way that, that was not stupid. He, he really enjoyed that. But within the show, boy, you better dot every quarter and sing it as it's written. And he's right. He's right. Because otherwise the songs can become frivolous. And if you do them the way they're written, they have a kind of gravitas that I think works for the show, works for the song, just works, in my opinion. But that's what you're asking for. You're asking for my opinion. <laughs> this is that, that, that famous uh, desert island question. If you were on a desert <laughs> island uh, with you know, five, or oh, ten, five or ten CDs, what, what composers, what, uh, what, what uh, show writers would you most want to have with you on those CDs? I can't get Rachmaninoff in there. I guess you could. Work in some classical. Well, let me let me put it this way. Some Mozart. If I came to your to your to your home here in New York and looked at your CD collection, what would I find in your CD collection? Oh, everything you can think of. I've also I don't play everything, but uh, I have lots and lots of um, popular music. And um, how, how do you define popular? Frank Sinatra popular or current popular? Or, uh, or I don't have a lot of Sinatra. I wish I did have more. Um, I was not enamored of his later work at all. You know, Baby, changing the lyrics and all that stuff really put me off. But his early singing was so pure and very, very beautiful. But, I, you know, I, I should get some of those records. I don't have those. Mm. Um, I mostly play classical music at home mm. and not always singing because I can't work – I, you know, my ear goes out to the singing, and it's hard uh -huh. for me to work when that's going on. So I, 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 I um, and I can't get radio very well in my apartment building. This is the second. We'll have to talk about well, we'll, XM. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk to you I don't know why. This, is, this is the second, second um, apartment I've been in, and for some reason I get terrible reception. How about, how about uh, show cast albums, Broadway albums? Do you have? Oh, I have lots of those, yes. Uh -huh. Lots of them, yeah. How, how did Flahooli come about for you now? You had been working at the Blue Angel, working at Tamament in the Poconos, and suddenly you're the, the quintessential Broadway ingenue starring your first Broadway show, Flahooli, in 1951, was it? Um, that's right, 1951. Um, my, my agent at William Morris, Charlie Baker, 
he he was a terrific guy. And uh, I first walked in to see him with my scrapbook under my arm. <laughs> and um, actually, he was with uh, MCA at that point. And uh, was another man. At, God, is it Maynard Ferguson? Does that that sound Maynard Maynard Morris? May, anyway, one of those names I can't remember. He, I went in his office at MCA with my my uh, my great big scrapbook under uh-huh. my arm. I was at um, I had done one year at Tamament, and he said, "Well, the person you need to see is Charlie Baker, who handled all the legitimate stuff, right, musicals and so forth." So when I went in to see him. He was quite taken with me for some reason, never heard me sing, just looked at my punam, as they say, <laughs> and at this uh, this array of stuff that I had in my uh, my under my arm, my scrapbook. And that day, he sent me out on an audition. And several years later, after we had worked together a lot, I said, how did how did you happen to do that? Why would you? You know, take the chance on on that first day, never having heard me sing. Why would you send me? He said, because I knew. He said, I knew. I simply knew. I knew you were wonderful. And he's the person who got the um, the um, Flahuli audition for me a couple of years later. And Yip um, Harburg nearly spoiled me forever because I sang. And he ran on stage and threw his arms around me, and I knew very quickly that they wanted me to do the show. But it doesn't usually happen that way. You don't get embraced in your no, auditions. No, you don't no. get embraced. And uh, oh, he was they just put the table in the way. They had the uh, uh, wooden bridge over the orchestra pit <laughs> so that he could come right up on stage, and uh-huh. he just gave me this great big bear hug. <laughs> he was a darling man. Well, in in your show with that, great taste. <laughs> in, your show, in, in your show with the Carlisle, you'll talk about another audition, one for Candide oh. in front of Leonard Bernstein. Yes. Uh, well, oh my God, that. I had never met uh, Leonard Bernstein, and um, he was late for the audition, which was at one of the producer's offices. And she had, um, she said, would you like to look at this uh, aria that he's written for the role of Cunegonde? So I said, yes, of course. And it was about, I don't know, 18 pages long, and I don't read music, but I could see all those high notes up there. And <laughs> the truth is it kind of relaxed me because I thought, well, there's just no way in hell I'm getting this one. You know, and um, I sang for him. I sang uh, one of the songs that I do in the current show. That was the first one, Make the Man Love Me. I sang for him. He said, do you have anything else? <laughs> and I said, well, I've prepared a, a version of You Are Love. I know you want to hear high notes, so I put a big high C ending. He says, don't, don't, don't sing that. I know exactly how you'd sing that. Well, I hadn't planned anything else. <laughs> but my teacher... Um, felt that everybody who studied with him should should learn arias. So he insisted on our learning Mozart arias and Puccini and Verdi and all of that. And uh, I don't know. I, it was madness on my part, but I, the only thing I could think of, I said, well, I could do Madame Butterfly's entrance music for <laughs> you. <laughs> Jeez. So I sang that and I did, the, did a big high, I think it's a D or a D flat ending, and, you know, that's how it began. And they said, well, we want you to work on this aria and see how I, – I had to find out whether I could sing it. It was a very difficult aria called Glitter and Be Gay. And um, when I began it, I couldn't even finish it. 
It's just the muscles were not mm. strong enough. You know, it's like when you're when you're carrying groceries home, mm-hmm. and every now and then you just have to sit them Tap down them. because you yeah, just can't yeah. carry them any farther. Yeah. Any, and that's exactly what happened with this song. I just had to little by little work up the the muscles, you know, to be strong enough to to finish it to do it. Well, it's one of the uh, the classic Broadway moments, of course, and uh, your version of it on, on CD available everywhere is, is, is stunning. Why don't we take a break and play it and let our audience hear you oh, sing? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Glitter and Be Gay from Candide. That's Barbara Cook, of course, from Candide and Glitter and Be Gay. The Music Man, you won a Tony for your performance of that as Best Actress in a Musical. Yes. 1957, was it? Uh, yes, we yes. opened right in December opened of 1957. So the 57, 58 season. How did that one come about and how did you get cast as how Marion, Marion Peru? Yeah, you and Robert Preston, of course, you know, were so wonderful. And uh, how did you get the role? Well, uh, I remember being asked to, uh, to, hear, to go and hear the score. Uh, Andy Griffith was there that day because he was one of the people who was being considered for oh, really? Robert Preston's role. Oh, really? And I, I was immediately taken with this score and also that wonderful zingspiel kind of thing that, that Meredith did, that talking and rhythm thing that was so interesting. Um, like he got trouble, songs like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frank Lesser was one of the people involved in producing the show. Kermit Bloomgarden was the the main producer, but I but uh, Frank Lesser had something to do with it. So I remember they did want me to go in and sing for Frank Lesser, and uh, he said, I, 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 he said something like, "I want to, I want to hear," because I had just done uh, Candide. And he said something like, I want to hear high notes. And I thought, why does he need high notes? And I don't know. I ripped off some kind of high thing. Um, and I think I got it rather easily. Meredith told me later on that uh, I reminded him, his, reminded him of his mother and that he felt that um, so much of what he wrote about Marion Peru in Music Man was about his mother. Maybe you look like a girl from Iowa. Should Who look. knows? <laughs> I'm very curious. Not Ohio, from uh, I, Iowa. I, I, Iowa, yeah. Did you say Iowa? I, th- I thought I said Iowa. I thought I heard Ohio. <laughs> I hope you, not. <laughs> obviously, we could quiz you about so many people that you've worked with and all of these greats, but I do want to ask you about Meredith Wilson because unlike many of the people you've mentioned, he had this one masterpiece of a show that lives on forever. What was he like? Because we don't hear that much about Meredith Wilson. Well, first of all, I think Molly Brown, too, is an extraordinary show. But it hasn't entered the canon the way no, Music it hasn't. Man has. But it's a wonderful show. It should be done. That's and, one and, that should be revived. Uh, uh, here, here's love. What here's I want to see is I want to see Reba McIntyre do Molly Brown. With Brent Barrett, who did uh, Annie Get Your Gun, with her playing Johnny Brown, hmm. I think that's that's would be just sensational. So tell her I said so, will you? Okay, well, <laughs> call her right up. But- uh, Meredith. Well, he was a complicated man. He was a larger than life person in many ways. A extremely generous man, um, and yet, I he was. I think he went to school with Fred Waring. And, uh, you know, Fred Waring Waring and his Pennsylvanians. Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians. And he invented the Waring blender. Remember that little (laughs) bit of nonsense? Um, 
at they went to school together they had they had been friends for years and he heard that uh Waring had had said something negative about the music man and I'm told that he never spoke to him again so he had that side of him too he also was um an extremely youthful kind of man he was in his 50s somewhere in the 50s I think when we did uh, music man and he did he just didn't have many lines in his face and all that kind of thing he was a very youthful very energetic kind of man um and obviously very talented and a delightful man hmm. uh, let me tell you a little story about this though he um on opening night he gave all of us uh, extraordinary gifts from Tiffany's and, you know, really beautiful, beautiful, lovely, expensive things. He gave me a, a, a heart that opened up. And when you open a heart four ways, it becomes a four-leaf clover, if you think oh, really? about it. Hmm. Never so it. when it's closed, on one side it said Barbara. On the other side it says Marion. And then when you open it up, it's a four-leaf clover. And on the inside are the first few bars of my four songs in the show. So it's just an oh, extraordinary wow. <laughs> gift. And on opening night, his wife, Rini, came into my dressing room to show me uh, what he had given her for opening night. It was an absolutely beautiful lorgnette in a, in a case that was full of rose-cut diamonds and emeralds and rubies. and It was just, you know, just encrusted. And inside there were... Uh, on the um, the case somewhere, there were these initials. Uh, let me get this right now. Um, NB to JB, and then it said JB to. Well, I'll think of her name in a minute. And then it said uh, MW Meredith Wilson to RW Reenie Wilson. And she told me what these these initials were. Uh, the first was. Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. The second was Diamond Jim Brady to what the hell was her name? Mm, you got he, me. Oh, oh, I can't think. You got me. That he <laughs> Sorry. Was, that he was so so. I, I can't, can't think buzz of, in on well, this. Well, my brain won't pull it up either. <laughs> and then uh, M. W. Meredith Wilson to Renee Wilson. And uh, his story was that he told the guy, "Well, this is obviously a." a quite a piece of thing here and he said if you can put our initials on I'll buy it <laughs> well come to find out years later that he had had all the initials put on oh. and he did it and he never told Rini and he made up the whole thing simply to please her <laughs> so there's this I, so that's an interesting person who could do that it seems to me a little bit of an impish well, thing yeah, well the, you know it's, it, the whole thing's a big lie uh huh but he did it for her mm-hmm. and never told her the truth, I'm told. And pulled it off. Yeah. How about Robert Preston? What was he like? Um, very, very affable person. Uh, tremendous personality. Very sexy guy. Uh, energy. My God, the energy he had. He was a born leader. He just – he really led the company and, and um, sparked the company as far as energy goes. And, and he spoke to us almost every night over the 
the loudspeaker before the show. You know, little bits and pieces. It could be a baseball score, you know, just something. Pep talk. To sort of, well, yeah. but it, 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 he didn't make you feel that's what it was. Uh-huh. But it's a way of pulling us all together, I think, hmm. before the show. Um, and on the other hand, we used to have a little visit almost every performance. He'd come into my dressing room and we'd talk before the show. And all of this generosity of spirit and affability and friendliness and all of that. And yet, I never felt I really knew him. Mm. So he was a very private person still with all of this seeming outgoingness, you know. But you knew there was something inside that you couldn't ever see or get to. Yes. Was was he a Robert or a Bob or a Bobby? Well, some people called him Bob, of course. But I don't know. My... My uh, diminutive for him, if you will, was Robert. I just called uh-huh. him Robert. Uh-huh. Not because of formality. I don't know. I sometimes do that rather than using the shorter. Another show, She Loves Me, 1963 for that. Yeah. Any fond memories? or? Oh, God. Well, that was, that was a really good show, wasn't it? I remember the first time I heard that score, Jerry and Sheldon. Jerry Box, Sheldon Harnick. Yeah, and Sheldon Harnick played it for me, and oh God, I nearly fell off the piano bench. Just one wonderful song after the other. Um, and of we course, were... everybody thinks of the title song, She Loves Me. That's when that comes to mind, but there's so many other wonderful oh, ones just, in there. It's a great, great score. Um, made a lot of good friends. We all got along very well. Early on, Daniel and I didn't get along for some reason. He was. He was in the midst of a very difficult marriage. Daniel Massey. Yeah. Who? I'm sorry. David. Uh, uh, Daniel. Daniel. Sorry, sorry. Daniel Massey. Right. He was in the midst of a very difficult marriage and um, she was verbally quite abusive to him in front of the company. It was unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And his father was the same. Uh, The hell's his name? Raymond Raymond Massey. Massey. Raymond Massey. Yeah. It was... um, very unpleasant. He came to see us only once, I believe. And, of course, there were people gathered around from the company who wanted to meet Raymond Massey, who was famous for playing Abe Lincoln in films. And um, he was terribly abusive to Daniel. It was, again, very unpleasant to see and embarrassing. You know, It well, amazes me when people are abusive and ill-mannered to people, why don't they understand that it makes them look terrible? Why don't they see that? First of all, to do it is just awful. But secondly, it's, you know, it's not even in the realm of self-preservation to to not, you know, why do they do that? Don't they see, you know, we all know married couples who uh, sometimes one or the other is abusive to the to the partner, and my thought is: first of all, they shouldn't do it, and secondly, don't they know how it makes them look? They're just oblivious, obviously. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier seventy-seven years of age. Reviewers have said you, you hear Barbara Cook at the Carlisle somewhere. You close your eyes, you hear the ingenue, you hear that voice from back in Flahuli or the Music Man or whatever. Do you do anything special to care for your voice? Any uh, special tea or anything like that? Or is it just natural? So many people ask me about that now, of course. And um, for one thing, 
I clearly was given by my voice teacher a really good technique that I've been using for over 50 years, for goodness sake. And uh, the other thing is, I guess it's genes because I never do anything in particular. The one thing I do in the in particularly in the wintertime, I should I try to be careful in the summertime too, is to wash my hands often. And because you know I'm kissed on the cheek or I kiss mm-hmm. people on the cheek and I meet people in hands and hands and I try to keep my hands away from my face and eyes and that's that's about all I do. I had a voice teacher who believed that. Uh, that vocal cords were strong and you didn't need to worry about night air and scarves and hats and earmuffs and all that stuff. And and that, uh, well, he used to say you should be able to be hit by a bus and stand up and sing. But of course, if you get a cold, then the voice won't sound quite the same. Well, you sound nasal. Yeah, you sound nasal. Uh, Usually, if if it's just a head cold, Mm-hmm. Usually it's not fun, but you can sing through it. Usually, have any vocal? But that's not what I usually get, though. Vocal you know, exercise, anything like that? I hate all that stuff. I've yeah. always hated really? it. it. Just bores me to death. So you just get up on stage and sing. Well, I'm, I, I have already said this, so you know, some people know. Until just oh, well, the last maybe six, seven, eight years, I would forget to warm up before a show. I just would forget, and. Well, one of the things my teacher said, too, is that, you know, you can overdo this warming up stuff. People leave performances in the dressing room mm-hmm. more often than not. And if you've been up and speaking and you're not singing Aida, for God's sake, then uh, you don't have to do a lot of warming up. I did discover at one point when the second song – this was a long time ago when I was at the Carlisle and I sang some song that had very long, sustained lines. It's about the second song. And – I don't know. One day it occurred to me, you know, that song might be easier if you warmed up. <laughs> and oddly enough, it was easier. So since then, I've been trying to remember to warm up. Occasionally, I forget. As we come into the home stretch here, we've talked about your early career. We've talked about young performers now. We've talked about how you put together your shows. In your show last year at Lincoln Center in the, in the Beaumont, um, you revisited many songs that you had sung originally in in the Broadway productions. And I'm just wondering, when you do those songs now, are you recreating what you did, or is it a whole different take on how you look at that material 40 years out? Um, It must be different, because I'm a different person. And to some extent, to some extent, it's different every day. I have a very solid pathway that I want to follow. It's all planned. I, I know what I want to do with it. But, you know, your emotional temperature is different every day. And I try to be present that day doing it. So there might be little a word that I might emphasize more on Tuesday than I did on Monday, that kind of thing. We talked a little while ago about uh, you do teaching and you were talking about American Idol, some of the young singers. Any advice you would give young people either aspiring to Broadway to show business or just singing in general? Well, um, the first thing I would say is um, if you don't feel this is something you must do, then maybe you should think of something else. If it's just something that you would like to do or that you want to do, that's not enough. 
there's so much competition, particularly now when there are fewer shows and there's less work than there used to be, um, unless it's something that you feel you absolutely must do, then you're better off, I think, trying to find something else. The other thing is um, try to see people who are really good at what you want to do as much as you can so that you have some way to judge. Um, And I think those are sort of basic things. It's not always easy to find a good teacher. There are a lot of charlatans out there. Um, What else? Choose songs carefully. I think people don't, young people in particular, just just don't choose songs that are right for them. You know, if a song if a song has a line like what I, can, I wish I could think of a, an example songs that um, that have deep emotional content. If you're not willing to fulfill those moments, don't sing the song. And sometimes you have to really take off your emotional clothes in order to fulfill a song. And if you're not willing to do that, then sing something that has a, a lighter meaning, which is perfectly okay. Sing, you know, if you're 18 years old and you're trying to sing Can't Help Loving That Man, uh, you're probably not going to make it. You're probably not going to make it happen. Pick something more suitable to your age, perhaps? Yeah, that's the point, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And then how does a person make herself or himself different than the rest of the crowd? Is it just natural ability? Well, they are you... different from the rest of the crowd. Because they're di- each We're person all a different. unique, unique person. All... You don't have to work at that. All you have to do is accept that you're okay. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's not always easy. But that's, you know, we are all okay. Always. And the more we understand that, the more we are able to, what, to be in life in a way that's useful to other people and to ourselves. And certainly that's needed when you're performing. Because, you know, until it's wrong to be human, the best thing to be on stage is human. And that means really, really asking yourself, who am I? How do I feel about this? Not, not uh, how do I do this so that I sound like Barbara Streisand? How do I do this so that I sound like Simon Cowell wants me to sound? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. None of that stuff. Um, you need to be willing to embrace who you are and understand that it's okay. And that's always what we want. That's always what we want to see is a real, live human being up there letting us in. And that will heal the world. I believe that. Barbara Cook appearing now through May 27th at the Cafe Carlisle here in New York. Your show is Tribute. You didn't know I was going to get on a soapbox, did you? (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) No, getting insight like that I think is so helpful to young people aspiring to get into the business, so to speak, like that. It's, it's very good. As I was saying, Cafe <laughs> Carline, that's, that's fine. Now through May 27th, uh, Tuesdays through Saturdays, two shows on Saturday. Tribute, Barbara Cook, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Me too. Thank you, Barbara. 
For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the media and education programs of the America Theater Wing are available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.